baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It was 4.15 in the afternoon, the last day of June, a sweltering summer day in New York, when all across the city, New Yorkers were jolted with an emergency alert on their phones. It was like an Amber Alert, but the alarm was completely different. This was a level five code red type of alarm. It was telling New Yorkers on day four of a citywide heat wave to start conserving energy now. On a Wednesday morning, the real field temperature already 102 degrees. Let's go live to the 10. Central Park's 98 degree reading that day was reportedly the hottest reading in the park since the summer of 2013 and the hottest high temperature for June since 1994. Not to mention the fourth day in a row with temperatures in the 90s and the second four-day heat wave of the month. Avoid using large appliances like washers and dryers and dishwashers. Today is not the day to use those appliances. Which mainly meant limiting, quote, unnecessary use of air conditioning. At a news conference that same day, Mayor Bill de Blasio declared the event a heat emergency. Since this heat wave began on Sunday, uh, our crews have restored service to about 27,000 so customers. So why right was now. everyone so concerned about the power grid? You know, without electricity, we're not having this conversation. You can't charge an iPhone. You can't stream Netflix. You don't have traffic signals. You don't have water. You don't have elevators. You don't have civilization. And it wasn't just New York. The country was experiencing a bi-coastal burn. At the same exact time, the Pacific Northwest was hit with a deadly and catastrophic heat wave, unlike any it had seen before. In Washington, unprecedented temperatures are prompting rolling blackouts in Spokane and causing roads to buckle. Tanker trucks in Seattle are hosing down drawbridges, trying to keep the steel from expanding. Not only threatening the area's power grid and crops, but literally melting and buckling crucial infrastructure, immobilizing parts of the population. Oregon's governor told CBS's Face the Nation that this was just, quote, a harbinger of things to come. Scary and unsettling. And all this just four months after sub-zero temperatures in Texas caused the death of at least 150 people and a total failure of the electric grid. The result of freezing temperatures not usual in that state. So why weren't we prepared for this? Is this really foreshadowing increasingly catastrophic weather events? And is there anything we can do about it? I'm WCBS News Radio's Linda Lopez, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey.
once in a thousand years. That's what experts were saying about the rare and unprecedented triple-digit temperatures that plagued the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia in a so-called heat dome. In Portland, Oregon, a record-breaking 116 degrees, some areas coming in at 124 degrees. In a tweet that went viral, Portland Streetcar shared a picture of its power cables, melted to the core. The cable had warped and wrapped around a piece of metal hardware that was likely superheated uh, by the the hot ambient temperature. So there was a a power outage along the Broadway Bridge, which is itself a a hundred plus year old piece of infrastructure. uh, And our maintenance crews went out to try to find it and found that uh, a feeder cable had, had wrapped itself around a piece of metal hardware and scorched through, which had taken down power in that segment. Andrew Plembach is a spokesperson for Portland Streetcar. He said it was so bad, the transit agency ended up having to cancel all service on June 27th. Because we were having a number of power-related issues, some substations going down, some cable issues, and a dry tree limb dropping on our overhead wires. And we wanted to make sure we weren't having power come on and then go back off, leaving riders stranded uh, out in the heat or also having our crews risking their health. Uh, and safety being out there in extreme conditions. Portland is in a region that's used to rainy and moderate weather, so many homes aren't even equipped with air conditioning. And many residents couldn't even cool off in local pools. Many were closed because the concrete around them could cause foot burns. So how bad was the impact on residents? As the culture in the Pacific Northwest goes, when things get above 85, people start really cowering, uh, 85 Fahrenheit, people start cowering and start spending a lot more time indoors. Dr. Vivek Shandis is a professor of climate adaptation at Portland State University. We have a very outdoor culture in the Pacific Northwest where a lot of recreation, a lot of outdoor dining, lots of activities. And so when you get something like this heat wave that came through, that's 20 to 30 degrees above the average for that time of year, it really sends shockwaves throughout communities and throughout the entire region. He explained to me about the link between this unprecedented heat wave and climate change and what needs to be done to prepare the region moving forward. Part of the way climate change works is that there's this entire planetary heating. So there's a lot of energy. And I would go with that question, like just to the physics of it, just not to get too complicated, but just the physics of it. There's a blanket over the planet right now that's trapping the solar radiation. So the amount of energy that's on the Earth right now is higher than we've seen it in at least uh, the last, you know, uh, 15, 20,000 years. And so that makes it very likely that that energy has to be focused in specific places at specific times. And so unlike the pandemic, which we call synchronous, meaning all the people on the planet are experiencing at the same time, climate change and heat waves work in a way where, and as well as droughts and uh, flooding for that matter, work in a way where it's uh, asynchronous, where different places will be experiencing different stresses at different times. Is this heat being attributed to climate change? Yeah, so in large part, the climate attribution studies are going to be coming out in the in the coming weeks, I anticipate. But when you get something like this that's so unusual, the likelihood that it's connected to climate is almost certain. And so the connection between something of such magnitude um, that we've never seen before and that's so unprecedented suddenly emerging and lasting for multiple days really suggests that there's a much larger force at play here, which has to do with the climate fundamentally shifting um, on a planetary level and that playing out at a very local level. So I would very highly 
um, expect all the attribution studies to point directly to climate change. How bad can it get for the more vulnerable communities that have to deal with this seed? How bad could it get for them? You know, I was, I just spent one of these 115 degree days driving around with my 11 year old son and just taking these images, uh, these infrared images. It's kind of like seeing the world like a big cat, like a panther or a cougar would see it. You can see where the hottest areas are, where the coolest areas are. And I took some of these images and one of the images that just completely floored us was the temperatures that we saw, houseless people living alongside a busy um, intersection of a major road in Portland. And I, I looked at the reading of the temperature of the tents that were set up alongside of the road. They were 135 degrees. And that is a lethal temperature for any human to be living in. We're not, we're not designed for that. We're not, we didn't evolve in those particular conditions. And when it was around 70 degrees is when humans did the most um, productive work as we've seen in the past. And so when we're up at 135, we're seeing communities just get hammered by the heat wave. And that's in the houseless community. We've seen temperatures indoors of buildings reach the same temperatures as well. Often apartment buildings are, uh, especially those living in higher stories of apartment buildings, are experiencing temperatures that are in the 130s and 140 range. We saw that in the Chicago heat wave in 95, the really well-documented ones where communities were inundated with that level of temperature. Bodies were found at about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And so we are seeing that in real time right now. And there are two pieces to it, the short term and the long term. If we're talking about rebuilding roads so that they're made of a type of material that withstands the heat, and if we're talking about switching over energy sources from fossil fuel, what's the most important thing to think about right now? Yeah, right now, um, it's a lot of this is about safety and security of the communities that are hardest hit by climate change. And whether, and we hear about, you know, condominiums collapsing in particular in Florida, for example, um, we're also hearing about massive heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, which are moving now into the Midwest and droughts that are really kind of straining agricultural productivity. So a lot of this kind of has ripple effects around the economy, around safety and health and well-being. And so what we really want to do in the short term, what really needs to be done now is to engage the communities who are hardest, often hardest hit from these disasters, from these climate-induced disasters, and finding ways to safeguard them from potential breathing in forest fire, you know, breathing in smoke from forest fires, reducing fatalities from heat waves, kind of preventing um, the economy from being uh, shuttered through massive droughts that reduce agricultural worker access and, and, and the economy related to agriculture. And so what we really need to do is think about this from a health and well-being, both financially as well as human kind of well-being. And so that that we have pretty good technologies, pretty good pro programming around already. And so that's the short-term quick thing that we really need to be getting in front of right now. Dr. Vivek Shandis, professor of climate adaptation at Portland State University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to talk to you. So many questions with all of the blackouts and the other problems with the electric grid. Uh, it's left a lot of North Texans in the dark today looking for a way to stay warm. These extreme climate events aren't 
limited to the sticky, miserable heat of summer and rising temperatures. Winter weather normally affects one part of the state, but today winter storm and wind chill warnings cover every county in Texas. In February, a snow and ice storm ravaged Texas, plunging the state into sub-freezing temperatures. It overwhelmed the electricity infrastructure and resulted in massive power outages and eventually was responsible for 151 confirmed deaths. Although a BuzzFeed data review estimates the fatalities could be four or five times higher than that. At the peak of the crisis, approximately 4.5 million homes and businesses in Texas were without power. We're talking about not just Dallas, but you're talking about Fort Worth and all the surrounding areas. North Texas has uh, somewhere between 6.8 to 7 million people in it, and, and you're having a massive amounts of people uh, who are now sitting in uh, sub-freezing degree temperatures. You're talking about... Almost right now, half of the total power generation capacity for the state's main electricity grid was offline. And in the midst of all this... Energy providers even upped their rates for customers. Reports of electric bills jumping from hundreds of dollars to thousands due to last week's freeze is an issue that state legislators say they expect to be dealt with quickly. The governor is absolutely going to focus in. He, he made it very clear we're going to solve but this But what does this have to do with heat waves? How are the events connected? And what will the new normal look like for the country as we start to expect more extreme weather? Well, the, the weather issues, of course, are are weather issues, and, and it's reaching the point where there's a lot more volatility. I got some answers from Ed Hers, UH Energy Fellow in the Department of Economics at the University of Houston. You know, far be it from me, a, a, an economist, to criticize a weatherman. But as we, we look at it going forward, there appears to be, the weather patterns are becoming more and more volatile. Uh, we're already on to our fifth named uh, storm for this year, uh, well ahead of, of normal schedules. And, uh, well, we just had a, an emergency power alert in New York City this week, uh, rolling blackouts through the city. You know, the, California's had some problems already this year. The grids are, are more and more fragile, uh, and it really comes down to what the consumer and the voter want to do about it. Uh, for years, we've, we've not reinvested enough money to maintain the reliability of the grid. And in some parts of the country where the population is dropping, where economic activity is dropping, you know, you can get by with that. But in areas where the economy has been growing, such as in Texas, such as in California, um, this is a penny-wise, pound-foolish result. Uh, Texans knew in 2011 with that uh, small uh, introduction to grid failure from a polar vortex exactly what had to be done to repair the grid and no one took any action. And we're seeing the same thing in California. California perhaps has a little different story, somewhat similar to New York. They've accelerated the retirement of fossil fuel plants, coal plants, natural gas plants, and they've accelerated the retirement of nuclear power plants. And to date, the renewable power portfolio is, is not sufficient to provide the reliability that most of us essentially have come to expect day in, day out. You know, it's not what the electricity costs to produce that provides its value. It's what it allows us to do. How much does climate, weather, and these kind of power grid issues need to figure into an infrastructure bill? Well, it'd be nice if it did. But from the bill that was passed by the House, the Invest in America Act, 
There's there's nothing contained within this bill that addresses the power grid. Uh, promotion for electric vehicles and for changing uh, the, the makeup of some of the transportation fleet, which of course is going to require more electricity the way the administration foresees this playing out. But uh, it's an unfunded mandate for the grid. And we have to think about the grid. The grid is generally managed locally. Across the country, there are 3,500-odd entities that make up what we think of as the grid. And most of us don't really think about this day in, day out until the lights are not working, the refrigerator's gone. Which do we need to think more about? The short-term fixes that will get local power grids shored up? Or should we be thinking more about the longer term, moving away from fossil fuels, even though, as you said, that could throw a lot more stress on the grid? We're going to have to do both. Uh, the grid has deteriorated to the level that, that the short-term fixes really aren't required right now. Um, the generation units need to be you know, oiled and repaired. For, uh, that is an extremely important endeavor we have to do. You know, Texas was four minutes away from losing the entirety of the ERCOT grid. 29 million people in Texas, 26 million served by ERCOT. The CEO of ERCOT said that it would have taken months to recover from that, months to get the grid back up to normal. We can't have a 26 million people in this nation without power, without water, without health care, without fuel, without transportation, without any way to go forward. Developing a comprehensive plan for our energy transition, we're not going to be there for at least 10 to 15 years. The ability to store renewable power to, to have it uh, uh, fix the peaks and the valleys, if you will, with battery storage. The technology is not there yet. It's not there economically. It's going to cost us money. And, and here's where, you know, dangerous as it may be as an economist, I'm going to dip into psychiatry for a moment. The consumer and the voter have a dissociative identity crisis. The consumer and the voter are going to pay for this. Out of one pocket or the other, it's going to be there and they haven't decided which way they're going to go yet. So then, top line, what are the actions you think should be taken first or right away? Well, first off, we need to spend some money. And uh, the ones who are going to spend it will be the electric utilities, the generation companies, the transmission companies that are on the ground. We're going to have to find a way to fund that, either through a, a, a government subsidy or by allowing them to increase their rates. Uh, had Texans increased rates just 25% going from three cents a kilowatt hour to four cents a kilowatt hour on average since 2011, that would have provided enough profit incentive for all the generation companies to have been winterized, weatherized, ready to go. We don't have that. And now we're going to be playing catch up for the next two or three years. You know, this was a, a, a debacle that was really 20 years in the making. It can't be repaired in anything less than two or three years. Ed Hers, UH Energy Fellow in the Department of Economics at the University of Houston. Thank you so much for your insight today. My pleasure. And the next climate crises may already be upon us. 
The western part of the United States has begun to buckle down for an earlier and potentially more intense wildfire season. Firefighters are battling a half dozen major wildfires in all four corners of California. President Biden says officials are playing catch up when it comes to wildfires and warns this season could be even worse than last year's. And cities in the south are evaluating what rising sea levels and more hurricanes could mean for their buildings and communities. Moya McDonald is the director of the Environment Program at the Walton Family Foundation. She thinks natural infrastructure might be the answer to restore our natural environment and mitigate the effects of climate change. But what is natural infrastructure? Working with nature, using environmental restoration to help better manage uh, climate change. And exactly what it looks like depends on where you are. If you're on the coast, it might look like restoring barrier islands or wetlands. Wetlands actually serve as um, almost like a speed bump for uh, hurricanes coming and and megastorms coming um, to the coast. And they slow them down, they weaken them so that when they arrive at population centers, they are less damaging. Um, In places where we're experiencing more storms and more frequent storms, we can be thinking about natural infrastructure as a floodplain or, or inland wetlands. So that as rivers rise, there's a place for the water to spread out and not damage houses or businesses or, or, or people. And then uh, out west, where we're experiencing climate change through droughts and wildfires, we think about ways that we can use wetlands to store water high up in the mountains so that instead of it all rushing forward in the spring, we meter it out slowly and it trickles down through the watershed, keeping the area wet and uh, reducing the uh, worst impacts of the drought, both for animals and for people downstream. But is anything already being done to quell the consequences of these increasingly volatile weather conditions? Well, following the fatal winter freeze, Governor Greg Abbott, in early June, signed two measures aimed at preventing future blackouts in Texas, with one of the bills focused on so-called weatherization, It requires transmission facilities and power plants to be able to function in extreme weather. Plants that don't keep their pipes heated and insulated face a fine of up to $1 million. And Western states are beginning to explore climate-resilient infrastructure. Everything from building higher bridges to account for sea level rise to exploring new materials to prevent the buckling of roads. But where policy might drag its heels... In comes human intervention. Dr. Shandis sees some slow improvements and has some ideas. A lot of that is going to be revealed in the coming weeks. Like this was such a kind of a, a shocking moment for a lot of us in the Pacific Northwest. And so whether that is going to translate into immediate action, um, I'm starting to see just things like cooling centers really getting a bit more attention and places where people can find refuge Our university, for example, opened up a series of buildings for allowing students and staff to come in and spend time during the day from basically morning till the evening hours. And so I'm seeing some some signs that there is a kind of a Band-Aid that is helpful right now, whether it has policy implications and whether building codes are going to change to be more heat tolerant and heat sensitive, whether uh, engagement programs, like I would love to see a a heat ambassadors program where individuals self-identify to go out and check in on their community members and making sure that they're prepared for the heat wave that's coming down 
the pike. And so these are the kinds of things that we currently have very little budget for. And with a lot of cities' uh, budgets that are undergoing considerable strain right now after the pandemic, I'm really hopeful that we will at least get more prioritization around climate-related challenges like this one that we just experienced. This week's episode of Connect the Dots was produced and edited by Mallory Samara and co-produced by Matt Pittman and me. Special thanks this week to Tom Rickard, Liz St. John, Patty Rising, Bridget Quinn, Austin York, Alan Skaya, Jamie McShane, Lilia Luciano, Chris Fox, Mitch Carr, Bill Smee, and our guests. Until next week, I'm Linda Lopez. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 